Sergio, if you like what we're doing here, if you support the show and you want to give support to the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. And if you do so, we'll provide you some exclusive content and some things that uh, others aren't going to get when you get it. So support us by going to Patreon. Yahweh. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. There you go, and welcome to Let's Talk Native. I'm John Kane, your host, and we are in the middle of what the United States calls Women's History Month. Now, I'm not a real big fan of these, these designations. Um, I think they are kind of like token gestures. And so whether it's National Native American Heritage Month or Black History Month or, or, or this month that they're calling Women's History Month, for one thing, there's, there's a certain part of this, this notion that we're only going to look back and we aren't going to address the women's struggles of today or the black struggles of today or the native struggles of today. I think there's a lot of, one of the ways to marginalize people is to only view them through a, the lens of history and not view people with their, the experiences they have today. But um, having said that it is, it's, it's a month that is being designated to, to honor women in some fashion. Well, as a native person, I don't think I can talk about women without talking about um, missing and murdered indigenous women. So that's what I want to talk about today. And, you know, there you know, we can rattle off a bunch of numbers and some of the basic numbers are, you know, are, are, are somewhat simple. I mean, you know, by m many estimates, you know, one in two native women will experience some level of sexual harassment in their lifetime or, or sexual violence. Uh, you know, the, the, the numbers suggest that, you know, one in three will be raped in their lifetime. You know, I know these numbers sound extraordinary, but they, they're real. And what women experience in their lifetimes, these encounters and, and this violence and, and this, you know, this essentially this crime is more likely going to happen at the hands of white people than anybody, white men. 70% of domestic violence, um, sexual harassment, rape of native people comes at the hands of white people, white men. And, you know, now having said that, what it's really saying is that, you know, about 30% are native people or, or, or other people of color. But, and, and that's a problem, and, and we need to address that. But what makes the rape culture so prevalent is not that there's not adequate laws. It's just that they, they aren't enforced. And what Native women experience, even at a higher level than, than other people of color, is this neglect. And part of the reason is because we are not considered an urban population, although we are. I mean, look, New York City has 
by some estimates, 100,000 native people living there. It's, it's one of the largest metropolitan areas with the native, as far as native population goes. But we are almost invisible. And, you know, Regan and I have talked about this on, on uh, Resistance Radio. But we aren't invisible. I mean, we, as native people, we exist in, in all of these environments. We, we exist in the suburbs, we exist in the cities, and we, live in, we exist in rural parts of rural America. And, of course, we exist on our own native territories. But we don't get um, the, the idea of prosecuting uh, white men in particular for crimes against native people, especially where we see the highest prevalence of it which is on native territories is that is such a common phenomenon that you could argue about whether it's really illegal to commit these crimes because if they're not enforced, I mean, there you, you have to argue whether, I mean, is, is it a crime to, to assault a native woman? If you, if you, if you can't face any kind of prosecution, yeah, it's a crime on the books, but it's never going to get on your record. Because it's, it's rarely prosecuted. Part, part of it is, you know, some of the jurisdictional challenges, whether, you know, whether you even have any kind of native jurisdiction over that is asserted through a justice system or whether it's county, state, federal. So some of the, the craziness about jurisdictional challenges l lends itself to this. And of course, the fact that, that the, the United States refuses to acknowledge our ability to assert jurisdiction over protecting our own people is it really lies at the root of the problem because if the FBI is required to even address a domestic violence situation, they're not going to come. I mean, look, the FBI is not a huge agency in the first place and they sure as hell aren't a huge agency when it comes, or you know, they don't, they don't have a big personnel when it comes to, to monitoring native, uh, you know, native territories, frankly, nor do we want them to, but in a situation where, where our women are, are in jeopardy, it is really, really difficult for, uh, for us to count on any of the systems that exist in the dominant culture. So I, I want to talk about missing and murdered indigenous women because I think we do, as, as a people, and I've talked about this before, we've got to come up with some of our own solutions. I don't think we can count on that outside system. But we have to really acknowledge it. You know, one of the reasons, you know, to talk about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit and, and even men and young men is to recognize the problem. We can't confront the issue if we don't even recognize or acknowledge that, that it's a problem. Native people die at the hands of cops at a higher level than anybody else in, in, in the United States and in Canada, for that matter. I mean, and I, and I know because of... Black Lives Matter and, and, and the, you know, the attention that, that came with, with George, the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor. We've all benefited from, you know, as far as people of color, from this call, you know, for justice. Now, I'm not saying they fixed anything. They sure, they, they sure haven't. I mean, look, we're, we're right now on the anniversary of the, of the murder of, of Breonna Taylor. And there isn't a real fix. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, the, the, the cop who killed um, George Floyd, you know, on trial right now as, as we speak. And the likelihood of a conviction is, is pretty slim because this is all part of the problem. But 
and it made it be, we, we've been some of the beneficiary of this, but it, it's still not acknowledged, you know, on a pr- proportional basis, how often, how frequent Native people are the victims of, uh, of death by cop. And even the missing and murdered Indigenous women issue is not only connected to the lack of resources, but the lack of prioritization. There's, there, is, there have been and there are ongoing claims that the, that the police are part of the problem because they are the perpetrators of some of this violence against women. We, you know, we've seen it in, in police departments, especially on the Canadian side. Hell, I just watched a video from this past weekend where the Vancouver police were beating the hell out of a bunch of women because they were doing, they were doing a protest. And the amount of violence that I saw that these police used against, against Native women, of course it was excessive. I mean, frankly, there's almost never a reason for a man to strike a woman. And I say almost, and, and I, I should clarify that. There's really no reason for a man to have to brutalize, ever brutalize a woman. Because, you know, even in the, in the instance of self-defense, a man can sim- simply escape. But that's not always the case with women. Women can't escape a male-dominant culture when the, when the dominant culture is a male-dominant culture. And that involves the police. Much of the calls that, 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 that we partake in, in the call to abolish the police or defund the police, from a Native standpoint, part of it is the complicity that the police have had in the mur- missing and murdered Indigenous women problem. So I think it's really important that we that we understand what missing and murdered indigenous women is. What is the problem? Where does it come from? And look, at, at its core, and, and I've talked about this before, a lot of it goes back to just the conditions that were created by American policy to diminish the quality of life that we have on our territories. That's why we have an exodus of native people, women in particular, who leave our territories and, and try to make lives in the cities, which makes them oftentimes even more vulnerable. That's why we, we, we see such a, uh, an incredible effort. And, you know, the, the runaway um, rate on our territories is, is high. Why? Because American and state policies, federal and, and state policies, have in many ways made life on, t- on native territories almost unlivable. Look, I have the, the benefit, you know, and, and the luxury of living on a, on a Native territory that, that is not, you know, that, that isn't, you know, the, uh, you know, experiencing abject poverty. 30% of Senecas live below the party, poverty level, you know, according to the national standards and, and surveys. But in some places, it's way higher than that. I mean, there's unemployment that, that, that top 50% in, in many Native territories. I mean, these are numbers that, that most people can't even wrap their heads around. So part of the, the, the experience and, and, the, and the policy-driven lifestyles that exist for Native per- territories place all of us at risk. They, they place all of us at risk for, for substance abuse, for, you know, for you know, uh, depression, suicide, all of these things. But women in particular become vulnerable 
look, we live in a world where we, where we can see all kinds of lifestyles on our phones, you know, on our televisions, on our computers. We can see all the things that we desire. But as Native people on our territories, the prospect for a, for, you know, for a high-quality life and a future, that's why we, we have, we have the, the exodus. that we, By some estimates, 70% of the Native population live off territory. And the reason that they've had to pursue lives off territory is because there was no life available for them on territory. And, and that includes things like a place to live, housing, you know, having a, a plot of land to live on. These are challenges that exist on Native territories. As our territories were, were diminished more and more and more, whittled away through allotment acts, through, through, through any number of, of bad you know, uh, dealings with, you know, with land companies and with states and with the federal government. There are, um, look, there are administrations that, that brag about the reduction of, of, of Native land holdings. <laughs> you know, I've talked about this. Charles Curtis who is, is a Native person who was the vice president of the United States under Hoover. He, some of his successes as a congressman and a senator and even as a, as a vice president are associated with the, with the massive transfer of land from Native territories to, uh, to the federal government, to the states. That contributes to the poverty that exists on the small piece of land that we have left and to what becomes of not just our, our, our men, but our, but our women. And of course, we also get into, into the problem associated with things like enrollment and blood quantum and whether it's a matrilineal system or, or, or I mean, all of these things complicate and all of these things jeopardize. Look, <laughs> I've talked about, you know, or not the, the Tulsa rise, but um, what the Osage experience, fifty miles down from where the away from where the Tulsa riots occurred in, in the uh, in the nineteen twenties, the Osage were, were like this this classic. I mean, uh, 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 not even classic. I mean, it's almost like an exaggeration of what premeditation, premeditated murder could look right like. Here you had a situation where white men would do everything they could to endear themselves to Native women so they could marry them, have children with them, so they could control their, the head rights to the, to the oil wells that the Osage lived a, a very prosperous life off of. In the 1920s, the wealthiest people in the, in, in the world were the Osage. And white people wanted it. So how did they do it? They targeted our women. They targeted the women, the Osage women, not just to, you know, for marriage and children, but to kill them afterwards. Because the way a white man could control the wealth of a Native family was to be the head of that Native family. And to eliminate, uh, to eliminate the mother of those children. And the crazy part is, today, there's a, there's a fairly large segment of the Osage population that are the children, you know, cause this wasn't just, a, you know, this wasn't just a, uh, a serial killing. This was a, 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 a practiced policy in Osage territory in the, in the, in the book, the killers of the flower moon by uh, David Grant. 
you can see how the FBI, when they targeted the murders in Osage, they wanted to make it sound like it was somebody on a killing spree. They didn't want to recognize how broad-based this, this whole practice of marrying into a Native family to, you know, to steal the, the oil wealth and, and how prevalent it was. And by some estimates, it may have reached 1,000 people, 1,000 women. And, well, and men were killed too, obviously. Because you had to you know, eliminate heirs, right? There may have been a thousand deaths associated with white men utilizing white masculinity over Native women to steal oil revenue, to steal wealth from Native territories. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's an incredible story, but it's emblematic of what Native people have experienced and, and Native women in particular have experienced for you know, since, since Europeans showed up, you know, one of the, uh, another story that is not really talked about was, you know, for one thing that, that, that native people were enslaved. I mean, and that was a very prevalent um, practice to, you know, to enslave native people, you know, look, we were already here. They didn't, they didn't have to, you know, ship us from, from Africa. So regardless of how people view the success of enslaving native people. One of the things that is true, and you can see this on some of the way you can see, I don't know to call them actually manifest, but there were, there were listings of, of men that were brought from Africa, not only to South America, but, but to, to North America for, for slaves. It was rarely women. It was most of the time it was men. So when you, when the United States, which really, reproduced slavery through the, the idea of chattel slavery. Most of the slaves that the United States claimed didn't come from Africa. They were born and bred in the United States. Well, who do you think they bred all those men with? And this is where native women who were enslaved and the rape culture that was not only a part of the European experience but it was also you know it also got incorporated into the into the idea of chattel slavery so while we're talking about women's history that's not much of the history that people want to talk about and if you don't talk about that history then you can't confront the present missing and murdered indigenous women is not an accident and it's not an epidemic this, is, this isn't caused by disease. I mean, ignorance is not a disease. Even and willful ignorance is certainly not a disease. It is something that people hang on to so they can justify their behavior. What, what Native women experience in the United States right now is, look, it, it meets the definition of genocide. On the on the on the Canadian side, when they did, you know, again, I know they've done these truth and reconciliation commissions for um, for residential schools, but they also, in an attempt to address missing and murdered Indigenous women, something the United States has done neither. They haven't addressed residential schools or missing and murdered Indigenous women. But on the Canadian side, they did. They spelled out that the. The phenomenon that is now labeled today as missing and murdered indigenous women, it meets the definition, the international definition of genocide. 
I mean, it's it's incredible because you're talking about not just a a a race or a distinct ethnicity. You're you're talking about half of the population that that end up being essentially targeted. And look, I understand that that in order for genocide, you have to say there's intent. So when these crimes of genocide are committed against people, you have to say that there's an intention to somehow diminish the population or to affect or, you know, you know, to change, alter the population. Well, when you talk about crimes committed by individuals, you say, well, that doesn't really qualify as genocide. But if the policy, if the, if the justice system is so clearly negligent and derelict in its responsibility, that's when you can say, yeah, there's some intent there. Because you could fix the problem. Look, most of these crimes are, are committed by your people. You already have laws on the books. It's your failure to enforce those laws that have left our, our, our women and our girls vulnerable. It's your policy that has created the, the unsafe spaces that many of our native territories are. So, look, while some people will use this month to heroize women in American history, and, I, and I'm okay with that, but while some people will do that, I have to point to the, to the conditions that women are experiencing today. Because, look, women in general are still very vulnerable to, to the you know, the rape culture that came from Europe that is still a part of the United States today. But no women are more vulnerable than Native women. And I think it's important that even on a month that is supposed to be designated to honoring and, up and be uplifting and, you know, and you know, create a good feeling about women, we've got to point out the ugly parts of it. And the conditions that Native women are living in. And look, our women are not, are, are not just you know, wandering around looking to be victims. In fact, in many of our battles today, whether it's, whether it's land back, whether it's you know, battling pipelines, our women are on the front lines, and that makes them even more vulnerable. Because when, when a cop can justify terrorizing a woman using his brute strength over a woman, look, I... I, you know, I I hate to point out the obvious, but my co-host on Resistance Radio was knocked on her ass in New York City at a Black Lives Matter rally. And, and she was just standing there and a, and a cop came running and bull rushed her and sent her flying. I mean, that's violence against women. And that's the cops doing it. And the video that I saw from Vancouver from Saturday night, that's exactly what that was. It was brute force, male brute force, inflicting pain and suffering on Native women. How do you confront missing and murdered Indigenous women as a problem, a problem both the United States and Canada, and frankly, in South America and Central America as well? Native women are among the most vulnerable people in any of these colonized territories, how do you confront it when you allow this level of violence by your institutions? So we aren't just talking about negligence. We aren't just talking about, 
Native people being a low priority when it comes to justice system. It's the justice system that is victimizing Native people. On the Canadian side, I heard numbers that, that somehow that, that women represent 25% of the, of the prison population in Canada. They're less than 5% of the population in Canada. And yet they represent 25% of the, of the, the female prison population. I mean, that's incredible. And it has to be clear, it has to be made clear that all of this is tied to systemic racism. All of this is tied to U.S. and Canadian policy towards Native people. I mean, when you say it's systemic, that's what you're talking about. You created policies that are always going to be adverse to Native people. And it's not just a money issue. I mean, resources is a big part of it. But it's, it's how, how we are projected, how we're portrayed. You know, how does the media portray Native people? How does the news media portray, portray Native people? I'm going to say it. it. It comes back to the mascot issue. If you're going to objectify Native people, then you're also going to objectify Native women. Disney's version of Pocahontas? You think it's a coincidence that, you know, her shoulders bare and her skirt is high? Do you think that was to make her cute? It was, it was about sexualizing her. It was about objectifying her. Big, brute, white man, right? John Smith. And little, lots of flesh showing Pocahontas. I mean, come on. This, this whole idea of, of what... A, a, you know, and look, any of the cartoons always had the Native women looking cute and sexy. Warner Brothers, Disney, all of them. But, you know, they always had the, the men, the Native men look like buffoons. And, of course, they always make the, the white men look like they're chiseled out of stone. And perhaps their hearts were. Look, I can't go through a, a month that is supposed to be dedicated towards honoring women's history and not confront the contemporary problems that exist, especially for Native women. See, it's not our nature to create heroes from the past, male or non, or, or, or female. That's not what we do. And, you know, I, I remember being confronted a few years ago with somebody who said, why don't we do a Native Hall of Fame? And I said, well, it's because we don't do that. In fact, many of our stories that we tell today, even still, I mean, and, and, and we've told historically, are not assigned to specific people. The names are made up for the stories. Because we're not trying to heroize individuals. Look, I know, you know, there's always, you know, white people want to heroize, you know, Geronimo or, or Sitting Bull. And I'm not diminishing Tecumseh, you know, any, I'm not, I'm not diminishing any of the, those, uh, the history of these people. But that's not our nature to do that. So on a month that they want to dedicate, you know, towards women in history. Yeah, we all have women in our history. We all have mothers and grandmothers and aunts and great grandmothers and that kind of stuff. But we don't single um, individuals out in our history. It's just not our nature to do so. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. You know, obviously the influences of, of colonialism and, you know, the, especially the male dominance culture that, you know, that came to our lands. 
it has changed some of our behavior. So, you know, we do some of that. You know, we do have a tendency to, on occasion, lift up. And we see it with the, with the Navajo code talkers. Oh, we're going to, you know, put them up on a pedestal. You know, and, and I'm sure that there are some people trying to find Native women that they can promote specifically on this, on this month. I say honor them all. Honor them all. And let's not just honor the women of history. Let's honor the women of today. And we don't honor the women of today if we allow missing and murdered indigenous women to continue. We show no honor if we don't address the contemporary risks that Native people and Native women in particular face every single day. The numbers are deplorable. And everybody should be offended by a number that even comes close to 50% likelihood that a Native woman will experience some form of sexual violence in her life. That's unacceptable. And we've got to take whatever measures we can as Native people to confront the issue and address some solutions and do so... <clears throat> without asking permission, without asking from the state or the federal government. You know, I think there's, there, we certainly need them to enforce their laws against their people. But when it comes to defending our, our families, our daughters, our sisters, our mothers, our aunts, we, we, look, we can't shop that out. We have to do it ourselves. So... I'm going to honor women this month and I'm going to honor them next month too. And so I encourage all of you who listen to this show to let missing and murdered indigenous women be a conversation that you have and recognize it, you know, cause it's easy to dismiss it because it is so prevalent. And, and look, there's always this little bit of shame that people try to, you know, they, they feel embarrassed by it so they don't they don't talk about it we need to talk about it and look we need to hold our men accountable too and even our friends and our relatives none of this is acceptable i want to thank you for listening um spread the word raise awareness to what our women are going through and let's do what we can to stop it i'm john kane this is let's talk native you know